Hello and welcome. This is Simon Jacobson of the Meaningful Life Center. Firstly, I hope everyone is well. And uh, we're living in unprecedented times. The upheaval and disruption that we're all experiencing on a global level is disorienting and destabilizing and creating a lot of a lot of confusion in many people's minds. At the same time, the human spirit is a testimony to the fact that we have been through all types of experiences and have come out stronger than ever, especially the Jewish people who are here for close to 4,000 years, have gone through every type of pandemic and epidemic and genocide and executions and persecutions and are living witnesses to um, the resilience and the power as the Bible puts us, the Torah says, as they were persecuted, they thrived and they flourished. So we can dig deeper and find stronger resources in these challenging times. As such, we decided what better way to um, celebrate and to look deeper into the situation that we're all in, we decided to begin a new series, conversations with world leaders, with uh, Jewish world leaders who have a unique perspective due to the fact that they're in a position where they represent and they lead and they inspire so many. And we begin this series, I'm honored to have with us the chief rabbi of Russia, Rabbi Sholeimet Dave Pinchas Lazar, better known as Rabbi Beryl Lazar. And just to capture it in one sentence, he is a living witness, and not just a living witness, an active participant and a leader in the literally miracle of our times, a renaissance, where for over 70 years, 70 years, from back to the beginning of the 20th century, the Jewish people were almost completely erased as far as Jewish life goes, persecuted, discriminated against, arrested, killed, expelled. And in 1990, precisely when Rabbi Lazar began his great work in this country, a rebirth began. I'm a personal witness. I've been there. It's hard to even imagine the institutions, the communities, children, women, men, thriving synagogues, classes, programs, events. I mean, how that happened, I hope Rabbi Lazar could perhaps give us a little insight, but I think it's a tremendous um, lesson, especially for our times, where people are going through upheaval, how we can look at it and how we can learn from it. So, so as I said, I'm honored to have Rabbi Lazar, a dear friend as well, and um, to be with us. And we're going to explore the condition of the world today, especially the Jewish world. We'll call it the state of the, the Jewish state of union. And most importantly, what each of us can do to improve the situation, because we're not bystanders, to do something that each of us can feel that we're part of the unfolding of a drama that's bigger than us, and we have actions and practical things that all of us can do. So with that, I will introduce and bring in Rabbi Lazar. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a great honor to... Uh, 
he's right now in Moscow. Moscow. Yes, I repeat that a second time. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. Shalom to everyone. And uh, thank you for the introduction. Actually, I wish I can take credit for everything that happened. But yes, I did witness uh, great miracles. But even more important, I witnessed when I first came to visit the Soviet Union in 1987, I witnessed uh, what Jewish heroes really look like. Uh, Baruch Hashem, uh, I was able to catch the last glimpse of uh, these special, special Jews who were ready to give up their lives, ready to risk uh, the well-being of their family members only in order to keep Yiddishkeit alive not only to to observe Yiddishkeit, only not only to keep the Torah and the commandments, actually to help others and to bring others closer to Judaism, to being connected to God. And this is really something that made an incredible impression on me, lasting impression. Till today, when difficulties arise, I always think, how would these people react? For example, with the coronavirus. Let's look how they reacted when uh, they were being persecuted, when they were, were being arrested, when they were being sent to Siberia to exile, just because they wanted to help one another. And uh, these people uh, are heroes in my eyes till today, and they really showed the persistence and the resilience that the soul really has. Yes, many times there are difficulties around us, but there's something that is much greater than the day-to-day -day difficulties that a person can go through, whether it's in his work life, sometimes it's his family, sometimes health, sometimes other difficulties. We are much stronger than these difficulties, and that's what I saw by these people. They were happy, they were positive, they were sure that things are going to change, even though nobody expected anything to change at that time. But they knew that what they're doing is right, so they're going to be stronger than all these difficulties. Well, that's a, thank you so much. That's a, well said. I would ask a simple question. You know, you were born in Italy, I believe, right? Um, Correct. I was born in the United States. My parents are actually Russian-born. My father was born in Moscow. And my grandparents, I mean, I come from a long tradition of uh, Russian descent. But... We, you know, we were born after World War II pretty much in a comfortable setting. We did not directly face persecution or fear. I remember my father telling me, you can't imagine what it is, 24 hours. You go to sleep in fear and you wake up in fear. They can come to arrest you, and they do come to arrest you. So growing up in a way, I would say almost like spoiled, certain type of comfort zone, um, I think what I see happening, and I'd love to hear how you see it from your perspective, Rabbi, is that, that 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 has been a big factor because people took for granted all their comforts. You know, I have my schedule, my summer plans, my, my uh, travel plans, my children are going to school. You know, everybody had everything in their schedule and then suddenly everything stopped. And a lot of it is not just, I mean, obviously there's the fear of the actual virus and God forbid people did die and there are people who need healing and may God bless them all to be completely healed and strong. But emotionally and psychologically, it's really shaken up people because they've never been in a situation where my everyone thought I'm in control. And suddenly, 
uh, all your uh, material life, even going to work, basic things, going to a restaurant, I'm going to a play, I'm going to a baseball game, whatever it may be. And it's just, uh, especially in a time like this with so much comfort with technologies and everything, that I think has been a very big wake-up call. I just, what's your take on that? Yeah. And uh, especially also from the perspective from how you see it in your country. We'll talk about that in a moment. Actually, you used a beautiful uh, analogy, you, like spoiled children. Just imagine a young child who's taken care of from A to Z. He gets his food, he gets his uh, bed made, he gets his uh, education taken care of. He's, he's really like, and, and he gets presents and he gets whatever he wants. Whatever wish he's going to have, his parents are going to give it to him. They're going to grant it. And this child grows up being spoiled at a certain age because his parents are so rich. They're just going to give him all the money he needs sort of to start a business or to, to enjoy life. At a certain point, he's going to wake up and he's going to realize that actually it's not a normal life. Nothing good will come out of this. It's actually, he has been spoiled. He doesn't know how to overcome difficulties. He has no tools to be able to stand up against uh, some uh, tests or tribulations. And the real question is, is this child really given the best present? Was the spoiling him actually something positive? And we say, surely not. We see here in Russia, children of the wealthiest, these oligarchs, they have a lot of money but they're lost, they don't know what to do. And if they're gonna get money, they're gonna lose it. Not only they're lost, their wealth is gonna be lost. Why? Because it wasn't, as Chassidus explains, a bread that they really worked for. When somebody, uh, you know, he works hard and he makes his first dollar, he really appreciates it. As the Gemara says, when something is your own, it's not it's not only bread that comes with shame because they're just getting and getting and getting. So yes, I think that people, they went through hardships. You mentioned communism, the Holocaust. These are terrible things. And now there's this pandemic. Also, people that died, it's really terrible. People that got sick, it's terrible. The question is, we know it's terrible. Nobody's going to argue that. The question is, what are we going to do? What are we going to learn? And, the, and there are two ways. Or you just pick up your hands and you give up and you say, it's too hard for me, it's too difficult. Or you say, thank God till today I've been spoiled, but now I'm giving a chance to use my inner resources, my real potential, what's really inside of me to overcome. And as you mentioned before, it becomes stronger, better, wiser, a better person. Yes, nobody's asking for it. We always ask God that he should be nice to us and give us whatever we need. But when difficulties come, the Jewish way is not to give up. It's not to say, okay, I cannot handle it. The other way around, because we're going through a difficulty, we know for sure that we're going to come out of this even stronger. And this is really the big test that we're having these days. The question is not what the test is. There are many doctors that are trying to figure that out. How it happened, why it happened. I'll tell you, it's, surely it happened because Hashem, God, wanted it to happen. The real question that each one of us is asking is not why, but what. What am I going to do now that this is the situation that I'm living in? What am I going to do with my family, with my children, in my work situation? There's for sure a way out. What are we supposed to do in order to reach a higher level? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, from my perspective, you know, dealing with different people, um, sometimes the challenge of uh, when, you're, when you're not spoiled, when you're persecuted, in a way it crystallizes your values. 
when you're comfortable, you become very apathetic. It becomes, you know, you take things for granted and you become, you procrastinate and there's always tomorrow. I mean, um, I wanted to go back a moment to how you even ended up in Russia, an Italian young boy. And then uh, I remember you from yeshiva coming to New York and studying there with the Baba Rebbe in 770. Um, but one of the things that the Rebbe always so much went to war against, because remember, he became a leader in 1950. It was right after World War II, and it was the beginning of the age of prosperity and comfort. So it was still challenging, but it was a whole new world. And the war against apathy, against what they call in Yiddish, gleich giltikeit, or adishut in Hebrew, was tremendous, because he fought the war just as much as we would fight a uh, Hitler Yimach Shemoy. Because it's an enemy, just an enemy within where, you know, I'm comfortable and there's no sense of urgency, that urgency. So I wanted to just bring this back a moment. Um, how did you end up in Russia in the first place, if I may ask? I'm sure a lot of people are wondering that. Actually, this was a childhood dream because we all grew up with the stories, as you mentioned before. You heard the stories from your father. We heard the stories from our parents, from Hasidim. Uh, Chassidim, they were visiting Italy. When I went to New York, I met these Chassidim. They just had come out of Russia. And we knew that this is something unique. It's a part of history and the Chassidic history, which is a, a testimony of, uh, of what really Chassidus gives inside a person. Because it's known that without Chassidus, people wouldn't have lasted throughout the communist regime. And people that didn't have Chassidus, they actually all ran away or gave up. And to see these people coming out of the Soviet Union as chassidim, as if they you know they grew up, as if nothing happened around them, they lived in their own world with the suffering and everything, and coming out so strong, I believe that they were much stronger than you know American-made chassidim because they had to go through that. And uh, I always used to watch them, and I said, uh, my dream is to see what it looks like actually in real life. And my dream was one day I'm going to go to Moscow. I had this dream when I was eight years old, 10 years old. I used, wow. to, go, I used to go to the central station in Milan and see the train leaving to Moscow. And I had this dream. One day I'm going to jump on the train and I'll make it to Moscow. And when I was actually learning in Yeshiva by the Rebbe, I was once approached by someone. I still had my dream. You know, uh, in those years, we saw Chassidim coming out in the 80s and the... Uh, Somebody approached me and asked me, are you ready to go to the Soviet Union? And for me, it was like, wow, this is my dream come true. I couldn't believe what year, it. What year was that? This was 87. Oh, wow. And I remember your father coming back from, uh, from Russia and Soviet Union. And uh, the stories that, the few stories that he shared. And that was like also, you know, for us, like you say, we used to grow grow and everything is allowed, everything is possible. So what's the difficulty to be a Jew? What's the difficulty to keep Torah? It, it's no problem. And all of a sudden you hear these stories of people that are ready to risk their life. It does something to you. Like, And uh, of course, after being offered as the Rebbe, and uh, once I got you know, the green light, the, the bracha from the Rebbe, uh, a few, two months later, I was actually on a plane to Moscow. And from day one, I would say even from uh, second one, was like an incredible experience. Every Jew that you met had a story how he was able to stand strong. I mean, in incredible people, really. And uh, 
I fell in love with them. That's really what it was. I really said that whatever I'm going to be able to do in my life to help these Jews, because I believe that they are really unique people. Till today, Russian Jews, I still believe, are the best. And uh, might be a little biased, but uh, I said, whatever I'm going to be able to do to help them, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, thank God, after we got married, me and my wife wrote to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe sent us on Shlichus to Moscow. What year was that? When, when did, Actually, right after we got married, we wrote to the Rebbe and we were ready to go after Shevet Brochus. Like, what year was that? We got married in 99, but the first time we wrote to the Rebbe, the Rebbe said that we should stay for a year in uh, New York, more or less. And a year later, we already got the okay to go. And uh, so I want to touch upon a few things, if I may. So, first of all, when you arrived there, and what were conditions like? I'm sure it was not like it is today. When I arrived the first time or when I came already for good? Both. You know, might as well describe both. So in 87, when I came, uh, of course, the interest, those were the official channels how you went. You went as a tourist. So they thought that we went there to tour the Red Square and the, the Kremlin and the theaters and the, and the museums. Of course, every day, early in the morning, we used to run out of the hotel and disappear and then tell them we got lost and we missed the tour and uh, make up the story. But actually, it was from when we landed in Moscow, right away, we realized that they're after us. Like They opened up our suitcases, every book we had to write down that we're going to take it out. If we're not going to take it out, they won't let us out of Russia because you can't give out any books. It's propaganda. And I mean, these stories are known. I just went through it myself. And then eventually meeting these Hasidim, meeting the refuseniks, meeting the activists, uh, that was really special, even though the, you asked what were the conditions, there was poverty everywhere. People were living a life that you can't even describe, but it didn't matter, matter for them. They had different goals, different ideals, different uh, values, and these things really didn't make a difference. When you used to ask them, what can we send you? Some kosher meat, some cheese, some... Uh, chocolates. He said, what? Just send us books. All we want is books. And uh, that's all they wanted. They wanted to really grow higher spirituality in spirituality. And amazingly, because there was so much missing, they were so connected to each other. There was such unity between the people. You couldn't even see a difference between, you know, the those that were Zionists, or those that were uh, it was just one happy family caring for each other, ready to stick their neck out, whatever was needed. Well, uh, let me let me ask you this. You said before you think, uh, well, you know that Hasidus is what really kept them. How would you describe that in simple English? What is it about Hasidus that gave them that inner strength and ability to survive and thrive through all of this? So uh, it's I really, I mean, to understand it, to understand it, you really have to learn Hasidus. I think that's the, the number one. But uh, I remember actually uh, when one of the people that came back from Russia, from Soviet Union in the early years, the time that your father was visiting, he came back and we asked him, what did you see? What's the difference between what's going on here in America and what's going on in the Soviet Union? And he said, the difference is very simple. As Rebbe once explained, there are two ways to serve God. Or, I was created to serve my creator. Or, 
I wasn't created, but only to serve my creator. They're saying the same thing. I was created to serve my creator. I wasn't created for anything else, but to serve the creator. But the difference is, as Rebbe explains, very, very big. Or you have your own life and your, your own uh, you know, comfort zone and your own enjoyment and everything, your vacation and, your, and everything that you want. And plus, I know that there's a reason that I was created is also to serve my creator. So in the free time, or when it's important, I'm going to pray, I'm going to help others, I'm going to learn. Or I wasn't created but to serve my creator. That's the only reason. Everything else is really irrelevant. And when you're focused, that what is important is actually to do his will. That's what I'm here for. What's the difference? Which conditions? If God put me in this situation now... I'm going to serve him now this way. As the Talmud says, If we were told to stand and, and uh, cut down trees, that's what we would do. And we would do it with the same happiness as when we put on tefillin, because we know that we are serving God. That's, that's the only thing that we're looking for. That's the only goal. For these people, where they lived really didn't make any difference. Their conditions, they didn't even think of them. They didn't even realize that it's an issue. What they knew is that they have a chance to serve God. So what if there are difficulties? It's the same. And this is what Chassidus really teaches a person of his humbleness and the greatness that he has a chance to actually serve God and how this really connects him with God. So everything else is really irrelevant. Once you, once you realize the, the beauty and the importance and the effect that a small deed does, if it's done the right way, everything else is really has really no meaning. But of course, there are many, many more teachings that Chassidus gives. I believe that only when you have a Yitzhara, right? You have an inner desire and you have to fight it. That's when you need Chassidus. A tzaddik really doesn't need it because he's there. And actually, all these difficulties that a person has inner or coming from outside, Chassidus gives you the tools to stand up, whether it's Mina Meitzar, a time when we feel the pressure, but actually because we feel the pressure, we can reach much higher. This is again one of the big lessons the Hasidic gives us. Yeah, well, I would add uh, just uh, obviously everything you said I totally uh, concur with. I would say Hasidic is also called sometimes the soul of uh, Torah, the soul of Judaism. So just like a body needs a soul to be alive and vi vibrant and passionate, Hasidic touches and empowers the soul to dig for deeper resources. Like you just said, when you, when you um, are connected to your source and you feel that, that you are here not to serve yourself, but something greater. So that basically means it's not just about your material needs, it's about some higher purpose. And when that's fed and nourished, and uh, what Chassidus does is it's on an ongoing basis, it feeds and fuels the soul, you have the power to dig deeper whatever situation you're in. I'm just... 100%. Uh, one of my... Uh, I remember hearing as a child the story of the previous Rebbe after he was liberated from jail and sent to exile. On the 3rd of Tammuz, he's standing in the St. Petersburg, now Leningrad, train station, and he stands up there and he gives a speech to his Hasidim that are gathered there to say goodbye to him. They thought that he was going to be gone for three years. And he had just been arrested threats of, you know, uh, he was almost uh, killed. 
And he stands up and he says, only our bodies are in Golos. Only our bodies can be arrested. And Neshama cannot be arrested. And that's the way he acted when he was in jail. His Neshama was in a different place. When you looked at these Chassidim in those days, you saw that they had, I mean, of course, they, they, you know, they ate and they lived somewhere and they had their jobs, but that wasn't what was important. They really were able to touch their soul. And like you said, there's a soul of the Torah, there's a soul uh, you know, of the Jewish people, but there's a soul in, inside each one of us. And that's the most powerful thing that we have, and, and no difficulties can stand up against it. If you're connected yeah. above, you don't fall down. What, what, what is so sad in many ways, and uh, that, that when it comes, you get, and when you're blessed with comforts and things going easy, it's like in a way, it's that most powerful part of the human spirit like gets weaker or gets concealed, I should say. And how to bring it out when you're in a comfortable place is, is, uh, is much more challenging. It's like, why should there be such a, a, a paradox? God made it that way, that uh, when the thing we don't want, we want least, brings out the best in us. And when things are comfortable... I'll share with you something that I haven't told anyone yet. Uh, we're talking about the coronavirus. So I was lucky enough to catch it. And uh, I was in the hospital for a week, but actually the toughest time were a few hours that I really felt like, you know, how am I going to get out of this? And uh, it was really the pain and the, and the suffering was really very strong and, and no medication was helping. And I remember a certain point I felt that's it. I, I just can't anymore. I must get out of the situation that I'm in and, and I must find myself in a different place. I, I just can't. It's just too much. And all of a sudden I started singing a nigun and it was one nigun and another nigun. And that was the only thing that gave me some calmness and, and feeling that I'm in a different place. I don't know if I ever sang a nigun with so much feeling as in those moments. And you think of the nigun in the chassidim, you know, uh, it was really an expression of the soul. We always say, you know, it's the, but we really don't understand it until you really need it. Like you think this chassidim when they were in, in the Russian Empire, they were going through hell. And this nigunim really came out of their soul. It was like a really expression to, to be in a different world, to really... Like the famous story with Al-Tarebi, you know, that he asked, they asked, they wanted to ask him a lot of questions, said, first, let's sing a nigun, and then we'll come to the questions. And once he brought them to the Elam Anagina, to the world of song, they had no more questions because he brought them to a different place. It's really, sadly, we are not able, and we should be able to, feel this connection on a regular day-to-day -day basis. When everything is good, when everything is easy, you know, you just... Uh, uh, you, you don't need to, if business is like just thriving, you don't need to think about it. But when difficulties come, that's when you really, you know, start deeping, uh, deep, digging deep, in, and then you can find new solutions. I think all the billionaires didn't become billionaires just by, you know, enjoying sitting by the beach and drinking a cocktail, and just this idea came up. They had to figure out something was not going the right way, and they had to come at it with a solution. Absolutely. I mean, thank you for sharing. Very moving. Um, uh, you know, I, I see that uh, from my experiences that there are, unfortunately, many people feel paralyzed and they feel trapped. But on the other hand, you see tremendous creativity and innovation 
um, in so many areas. Like, for example, this whole idea that many shuls, or I'm not sure how it is by you, but but here in the United States and in Israel and other places, literally couldn't go to shul for months and months. And Pesach, of course, we all know I was in quarantine. But I saw such tremendous innovation. People, you know, they suddenly have to be left and figure out, what am I going to do? And you don't want to just be miserable. So you dig deeper and you find deeper ways to connect to God. And you realize, you know what? God isn't only in a synagogue. He's also in your home. He's also in your heart and soul. Uh, did you see, how, how is it in your country or in your situation? Is that, is that as, as, as dramatic as it is, let's say, where I am in New York or other places? For sure, people, and I had many different interviews in the Russian press, and people came out and said, you know what, now we realize that the values, actually a lot of the people spoke about the values of the Jewish people, you know, family and uh, learning and all of that, how important it is, how vital it is today. In the past, we didn't even realize that we were able to live without this. Now, when you're stuck at home and you have to, you know, show an example to your children and live a certain life and be positive and everything without these values, you're lost. You're really, and the family falls apart. And many people spoke about this. I know you can build a synagogue in your own home. And when you daven at home, sometimes you could feel something that you didn't feel when you were davening in the shul. And the question is how to bring that feeling back into the synagogue tomorrow. But one, I want to discuss something else that actually I saw and touched me very much is how people reacted within the community. Before Passover, before Pesach, we realized that we won't be able to have a regular public darim, which we used to have every year with thousands of people. Just in our shul, there were like over 5,000 people every year. So what do you do? You tell these people you cannot come, and it's two weeks to Pesach, and the doors are closed, and there's no way we can come together. And this idea came up to send people a seder at home. And we sent to every, in every city in Russia, the local community sent a prepared seder. With a, of course, I got the wine and the matzah, but everything that you need for the seder and the food and, and the chrein and everything was packaged and people received at home a package that they can celebrate the seder at home. And amazingly, people said, we're never going to come back to the synagogue to celebrate seder. We, we realized that the Seder is something else. What we did at home this year was so much more special than what we normally had in the synagogue. After Pesach, we said, this is an important lesson. It's not only about people coming to shul and then serving them. What can we do in their home? And we started sending every Shabbos. It's turned Friday night into Shabbos. We sent the Kiddush package to every Jewish home. It's, of course, wine, challah, filter fish, a, a newsletter where it talks about ideas that you could discuss by the Shabbos table. And Emir Tashem touched so many people. They used to come to the synagogue and they said, we cannot keep Shabbos at home. No, of a sudden they realized, you know what? It's so easy. So, so much more, like you said, you have to think out of the box. You cannot just continue and say, oh, that's it. We are stuck and we cannot do anything. But every situation, we can find a solution. Question is, of course, we don't want that. We want this. It should be a reminder for the rest of our life of how not only creativity, but caring. People that many of them weren't making money, but they said, but we have to help each other in this time. It's not a time to think about ourselves. How can we help each other? People who are volunteering, people who are going out of their way. It was really extremely touching to see how the community came together. Yeah, powerful. Very powerful. I, I just was speaking to a person, as I heard this from many um, that when came Pesach, Passover, 
they uh, were terrified because they're going to be alone with their spouse for the first time in 25 years because <laughs> they were an activist, someone very active. And here, you're never alone, really. And uh, not that there was, God forbid, any issues between them, but, you know, when you haven't done something for a long time, you start wondering what it's going to be like. And said it was unbelievable because when you're suddenly in a situation, it brings out a deeper appreciation of the people you love and care about, your own families. I mean... Uh, uh, and a lot of people were concerned with that, but in many ways it's brought families closer, parents to children, husbands and wives together closer, and as you said, communities. It's quite, it's quite amazing. I mean, there's no question that this is a historic period. I mean, I, I personally have never experienced anything like this. I don't know, except the coming of Mashiach, whether there could be a bigger global disruption like this one. And uh, when going back for a moment, because I, I find that your personal story and uh, as well as your collective story is so is so uh, relevant back in 1990 when you first arrived there with your wife and just began with there i mean i'm sure there were some uh, challenges it wasn't just easy even though uh, even though that the uh, the persecutions were being relaxed and things were changing but if you could just share were there times that you felt this is just too much for me or you were able to hold on to that uh, nigan as you said to keep it going. How was your own if you... If really you know. my wife, because she was the one that had it the toughest. For us, it was easy. You know, we used to wake up in the morning, go to shul, and then sit late at night with Fabringens and give classes, and you know, the difficulties around you, they don't really affect you so much. But at home, it was very, very difficult. I mean, besides, it was, it was nothing to buy in the stores. The shelves were empty completely. People were going hungry. We had these lines you know, around the block. And then when finally you got to the store, if you found some potatoes, you were lucky. And when you had to prepare for Shabbos, it was just, you know, you finally get some food on the table. And according to that, you make Shabbos. One Shabbos is going to be potatoes and carrots. Another Shabbos is going to be beets and uh, whatever you're going to find, some Pepsi, cola. It, the situation was really, really difficult. And our house was infested with rats. And uh, it was crazy. It was crazy. And the, the situation then was the whole Soviet Union collapsed was collapsing, was poverty everywhere. And people were just, you know, every Shabbos at our table, they just, people used to come in, nobody asked for an invitation. You know, they knew that they can get some food and they just used to pile in. And our home was, you know, ransacked a few times. It was anti-Semitism was rampant. Uh, our shoe was burned down, fire bombed twice. I mean, bombed twice. And uh, people were being attacked in the streets. And, and you know the mafia and everything was was really crazy. It was a crazy time from the 1990 for the first years, and all the Jews were running away to Israel. So people looked at us like we are completely crazy. Like why did the Rebbe send you when everybody's leaving? Like everybody's going one way and you're going the other way. What's the point? And uh, of course the Israeli government was against us because we tried to build local Jewish institutions, whether it was schools, community centers, synagogue, rebuild them, and they were saying you're stopping Aliyah. Because, because of you, people won't leave Russia or the Soviet Union. And we were telling them, we are the only ones that are going to remind them who they are. And eventually, actually, both the Jewish agency and everybody else and the Israeli centers actually came and they said, you know what, you were right. And they themselves today are busy copying what we are doing, whether they call it the Hutu did, and uh, you know, uh, understanding who you are and really finding these Jews. There's no question that if not for the shluchim of the Rebbe and the hundreds of shluchim that the Rebbe sent to the Soviet Union and to Russia, Ukraine, I'm saying former Soviet Union, if not for them, 
of course, the Jews that were leaving to Israel, those were the ones that were more connected. But the ones that were left here, everybody said there's nobody going to be left. And today we see there are hundreds of thousands of Jews that reconnected with the Yiddishkeit only thanks to the vision of the Rebbe and, uh, you know, caring for one Jew. Just last night we were sitting by Fabrengen because a young couple is traveling to Birabijan and Shlichus. Birabijan is the, the Jewish autonomous region. It's nine hours flying from Moscow, nine time zones, and then driving for another few hours, a place that Stalin wanted to bring all the Jews together to make them forget about their Yiddishkeit. And we were telling him probably the reason that it was done, it was in order for you to be able to go there and change the whole scenery. So when you see young families born in Russia, uh, and their parents didn't know anything about Judaism. And these kids became not only rabbis and uh, chassidim and all of that, but they're ready to go out on the shlichus to these far remote places and, and really, like you call it, mysterious nefesh, like not going uh, to have a good life. It's really going to these places where in the winter it's freezing cold, in the summer it's unbearable, and uh, they're doing it with a smile. They're doing it with, like, uh, with so much enthusiasm. And this is really what had saved Russian Jewry, no question about it. So back then in the 90s, I think it's a tremendous lesson for today. Did you at all envision there'll be a day where you will have more than potatoes and not infested home and that there will be uh, the renaissance and the experience that actually happened? Did you believe that that is going to happen or you believed that whatever God will do, will do and you'll just ride along? I mean, was there a... How, what was going on inside of you and your wife and uh, as you were also building a family as well, I should yeah. mention. No, nobody believed anything and nobody thought of the future. We were trying to really survive day by day. What was impressive for us and what was touching and gave us the power was seeing these people who were coming back to Yiddishkeit. People that would change their life because they found out what Yiddishkeit is all about. And this gave us an incredible satisfaction. Like, okay, so you have hardship. But look at what's happening. And we can't leave. There's no way we can leave because these people are going to like, if you leave, what's going to happen? Like, what are we supposed to do? So, and all of a sudden you see these people that are ready to remain, stay in Russia against logic and become shluchim there and, and, and start working for the community and helping out. And so nobody ever dreamt that things are going to get better. Like we knew that anti-Semitism is probably in the Soviet Union forever. And, it, and at that time, it was you know, after the government anti-Semitism, there was so much propaganda, so much, uh, so many myths. And uh, I mean, people still believe that the Jews are killing these Christian boys to make the matzah. Jews believe that. I mean, it was crazy. It was like, and uh, nobody ever thought of how are we going to rebuild and what are we going to do? But we knew that we have to save these people. It was like really fighting against the clock and, and, you know, finding one more family, one more child. And people were actually, the ones that stayed back in the Soviet Union or Russia, people were afraid to come out and say, we are Jewish. They were ashamed of who they were. It was after, you mentioned before, 70, 80 years, the mindset is different. People just, they don't trust anything. So you tell them, no, things change. You know, the Soviet Union fell apart. And Yeltsin is actually, you know, returning buildings. They don't believe them. It's all a game. It's a, they're going to, come around us up. People were afraid to leave their phone numbers in the synagogue because they knew that tomorrow some kind of anti-Semitic organization or the government is going to come collect these, this information and go after the Jews. Right. 
even tell their children that they're Jewish. But the Rebbe actually... Well, I'll tell you. In a yeah, go ahead. way, the Rebbe said that things are going to change. And nobody understood. I remember sitting in 70 and, uh, you know, even listening to your Chazer in the Fabringen and hearing these words, this prophecy of the Rebbe. And we used to think this is fantasy. This is like, it's never going to happen. Like, what is the Rebbe talking about? But today, when we look back, the Sikhs when the Rebbe spoke in Russian, and in the in the 1980s, and, and Rebbe was talking about. I remember Lagba Emer, 1980, and the Rebbe spoke in Russian outside. Yes, it was. Anniversary this Sikh and Rebbe spoke in Russian about the police has to watch Jewish children going to the synagogue, coming back from the synagogue, making sure that they're going to be safe. And this is the Russian constitution. What constitution? What constitution? Who thought of the constitution? There was anti-Semitism, government anti-Semitism, you know, attacking the Jews, doing everything that they can to eradicate Yiddishkeit. And the Rebbe is talking about, you know, the rights of the Russian, the Soviet constitution. But the Rebbe said, if they're not going to do that, a new government was going to come in their place. And these words, no question, is what brought the change, and that's what we see today. Well, I'll tell you what I'm hearing, if I may give you like my as a sounding board, and it's good that we're addressing this because what you're saying is not just ancient history; it's a real a contemporary life. But the lesson for today is is uh, unbelievable because you know you mentioned before Hasidus. I mean, the only reason you and your wife went there was, as you said, from a young age, you had a dream to see this and be part of it. And it was a, a basically a super rational connection to the cause, to the Rebbe who was driving the cause that touched the essence of your soul. I mean, I'm not saying this to flatter you or just to, I'm just, when I hear it as, a, uh, as listening, that it was a, a thing that's more powerful than your comforts. If you were following whatever you're comfortable with, then you go wherever is easiest. You went where the cause was most necessary. You knew that's where the Rebbe sent you. So there's no like quitting. And I'm not leaving when it's uncomfortable. And we just ride it through. That is such an important lesson today. Because even with our challenges today, you can't always compare. Every challenge has its own, uh, com uh, its own complexion. But the, the ultimate lesson is this type of the, the, the indestructible power of the neshama, of the soul, of the spirit, that when you connect to that, which is what the Jews in Russia did through their hardships, and I have to say, you, you, not only were you drawn to it, you, you uh, in your own way, lived up to it, and then not only does it let you ride through it, look at the, the, the end of, it's not the end yet, but look at how things develop, and suddenly you realize that, I mean, it brings me back, you mentioned the previous Rebbe before, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's appreciated pr enough in the larger world. And I mean the larger Jewish world and the larger uh, the entire world. A man in 1920s, and the 1920s was, whatever was later was, was, was beyond horrendous once Stalin came to power. To stand up completely, you'd say, almost crazy. To stand up against entire regime and adamantly refuse to buckle, be arrested and almost killed. And still come, still prevail and come out. Now you see, 70, 80 years later, this, and he planted those seeds. Had he given in one inch, all that would not have happened. I mean, you talk about a lesson for today, the lesson. I mean, I've seen it. We, we both saw this, and so many of us. I would see week after week, the Rebbe speaking. And 
that type of adamance that that you know when you're so we see someone that's 200 certain and relentless i remember once as a young man i was a boy as a teenager standing by an ocean and i saw the waves and i, I stayed all night i was waiting for the waves to stop the waves from the sea and they never stop and it reminded me uh, really of the rebbe it reminded me of judaism in general this type of relentless there's no such thing as giving up there's no such thing as hesitating as retreating whatever comes your way it's a storm yes we have to recognize the difficulty we're not talking about being reckless or irresponsible but that type of relentlessness it especially when you're young it touches you such a deep place that you realize i know i know for myself and i don't, that when this pandemic broke the first thing i didn't even think twice this is time of war emotionally psychologically and we have to this is what we were trained for and i and i hear your story and uh, and 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 look where it's happening now you know so just i think it's a, an absolute lesson for our times each again each challenge is different but the spirit rising among amidst anything is um, you know so uh, i'm very <laughs> I, i i know i know i was looking forward to this discussion but especially eliciting that type of um, the, the story that you this the story that you described the stories is a, a tremendous lesson for our times I mean, people look for the formula. That's the formula. You want what is the formula for making it through when things are challenging and uncertain? That's why I wanted to ask. What did you expect? But you drove forward. That's it. There's an expression in the Torah when the Jews were stuck between the sea and the Egyptians pursuing them. They they didn't know what to do. And ultimately, God said, "Why you so? One word. Move forward. There's no retreating. You move forward, and things happen. The sea splits. Other things open." All kinds of opportunities open. I think uh, so. I wanted to just, you know. I just want to add to this. I think you really hit it under that. And you mentioned before that this is an historic time. I think it's historic for each one of us, but especially for our children that are growing up. They're never going to forget. About that. Go ahead. <laughs> this experience—it's a very sad experience, but it's something that's going to stay for them with life. And the question is, what did we do in these times? Did we give up? Did we become like uh, completely, you know, non-functioning? Or we said we we kept on moving. We went on and we didn't stop. We did even more. And uh, like you mentioned, the previous Rebbe, he was one against two hundred million. How many times Rebbe said there was no chance for him to win? It was impossible. Like no his historian will tell you that ever such thing happened in history. One person standing against tanks. And the army and, and the regime and a superpower and winning and look today this is the result he actually won today when we celebrate Yud Beis Tammuz it's not only a liberation that he went out of jail he he liberated the Soviet Union the whole concept of communism which was then like you know there's no other way and it's going to stay forever it's completely gone and look where his teachings are going and you mentioned uh, the Rebbe which I think is Surely, you know what inspired us and, and told us we're going to go and uh, because we heard every Fabrengen that Rebbe said, you know, go out and do and, and don't stop. And, and, and no question that the words what was really, you know, touched us and everything. But I remember one incident. Uh, I was then next to the Rebbe's room because the Rebbe asked that the people should uh, watch the apartment of the previous Rebbe. The same way that the Bismillah was being watched, and I was standing there, and all of a sudden, people 
a group of a delegation came and tried to convince the Rebbe to do something because imagine what people are going to say if we don't do this. This was their concern. What will the world say if we're not going to do this and this, these steps? And the Rebbe looked at them and he said, from childhood, I was taught that you don't do anything because of what people are going to say. In other words, the question is, what you stand for and what people are going to say and what people are going to, you know, there's the people that work according to the you know, populism. If it's going to be popular, they're going to do it. If they're going to get votes, that's what they're going to do. If you look at many different issues that the Rebbe was standing strong for, whether it was Mio Yehudi or the uh, Israel that it should not give back territories, whatever the issue was, it was so much conviction that this way, and that's it. There's no other way. It's not that we're going to start discussing, is it possible, isn't it possible, will it work? What's the difference if it's going to work or not? If this is the truth, it's going to work. And I think that this was really what the Chassidim here in Russia actually proved, that there's no, like they asked him, why did you, how did you manage? They said, well, we could do it differently. There was no other way. This is the only way. And we're not going to think if it's possible a different way. Can we back down? There's no backing down. They just, you keep on going, and, and at the end, it's going to be good. So, so let's, let's sum up that regarding the message to the children. So how would you uh, capture it? Like, what would what parents, educators, in this historic time, besides our actions, obviously, what is the message? Like, when our children say, I can't go to school, I can't go to camp, I can't do this, all these limitations. Like, how do we, uh, I mean, you're, you, you deal with uh, literally thousands of, children and students and so on. What would be your message to a parent and educator and to the children for that matter? So uh, the message is like you mentioned, you open the Torah and you see whether it was from day one of Avram Avinu and, and, and until today's day and age when we tell stories, it's not only about telling a story of something that happened. Heroism is not just to tell the worst such heroes, you're gonna be the hero today. Let's see what you can do in such times. Can you reach out to other people? Can you help other people? Can you be, don't be uh, sad, be proactive. You go out and because of what you have and what you stand for, you help other people, whichever way it is. For some people is going and helping out the elderly that are stuck at home and really in danger and not going into their home. I'll tell you, I'll share you an interesting story. One of our young people went to deliver a package to an old person. And the person behind the door said, can you do me a favor? Can you go to the drugstore and get me a medicine? He said, of course. And he gave him the name of the medicine. He came back and he brought the medicine and he didn't want to take money from the person. This is a young boy who did it because he believed that this is what he has to do. So you mentioned time of war. In the time of war, there were different people. Some people, you know, they took away the piece of bread from somebody else. Some people gave the last piece of bread to somebody that was dying and he saved their life. So question is, what do we do in time of difficulties? Or we say we are not able to overcome these difficulties, or because of the difficulties, we're going to find inner power and do things that we never thought that we are able to do. I'll, I'll share with you something that I always think about. The shluchen that went out to the world, but they were so sophisticated. They were fundraisers. They were like, uh, they didn't know what they were doing. They just came out of the yeshiva with no education of how the world runs, politics, and anything else, right? But when you're in a certain position and you know that you have no way out, you're going to manage. And that's really the, the strongest message. If 
in these times, kids are going to complain about they cannot go to camp. Of course, you cannot go to camp because you know why? Because you don't want to hurt somebody else. By you not going to camp, you're actually doing a mitzvah. You're doing Avos because you're saving somebody else's life. And the same reason that you're not going to camp, you have to use these days to help others. How can you find out what your really inner powers are only when you're put in such a situation? So this is going to help you for the rest of your life. If you manage now, it's going to be amazing for the rest of your life. If you give up now, it means you're a lost soul. So don't give up for sure. And, and the other way around, let's see what are you good at? How can you be useful today when yesterday they didn't need you so much, but now they need you. So let's see what you can do. Well said. I think these challenges, nobody's going to become who they became without a challenge. So that's what I was saying. The shluchim became who they became because they had a challenge. And you shouldn't be afraid to tell your children or your students, you have a challenge, let's see how you're going to react to the challenge. Very well stated. Excellent. I would just add an analogy. They say that we are like um, the Jewish people or people in general are like a tea bag. You don't know how strong you are until you put into hot water. You know, just as a, a most example. To affect, to affect the rest of the world. It's not only about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right, right. Um, you know, to take it from the well said, as I said, excellent message, necessary. And I want to, I would only add that as I, to parents and educators, I would say as well, that it's your actions. When you behave in a fearful way and tentative and retreating, your children see that. And uh, so it's vital that you also behave this way because that's a living example that they will forever remember. Because whatever challenge any child will face as they grow older or student is going to be, this is a time that they will always turn back to. How did we behave as you so eloquently, the rabbi Lazar presented? Can I just, uh, I don't want to give comments because that's not the way I normally uh, work, but I'll, I was actually thinking, I remember your father very well. You know, I remember him coming into the Fabrengans and the attention the Rebbe gave him and, and the way the Rebbe respected what he was doing, even though nobody really understood, you know, what, what his mission was. But uh, incredible, you know, uh, Kiruvim and uh, the Rebbe really uh, appreciated what he did. And I was thinking, like, look at Baruch Hashem, you know, you, your brother, what the two of you have achieved, I really think it didn't happen by chance. It happened because you saw somebody standing up against incredible pressure. And remember those days, you know, there were, everybody was attacking him, but, but he stood, you know, for what he believed was right, and he printed in the pre, in the paper, and he might lo lose some uh, uh, readership or whatever it's called, and everything, but he didn't do what was popular. He, he did what he believed was right, and he was on a mission. And, and it goes back even before. I think it's your grandfather, and uh, he was one of the people that the previous rabbi signed this... Uh, uh, the pact of you know blood. we're going to go to the last to the last drop of blood you don't by being by living a life of luxury and 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 just you know every year going to camp and having fun and going on vacation you mentioned before and all of that you're never going to find out where your children are and your children are never going to have a story to say about my parents think of the people that you know so he uh, heroic uh 
things done in the time of war, for example. And that's what really gave them the power to continue. So the question is, what is the message that you're going to give your children today? Is this going to be only, you know what, I feel so bad for you. It's so terrible. You don't deserve it. You should have been in camp. And, and, the, and the child is depressed and you're depressed and, and everybody's going crazy because we're stuck at home. Or you're going to take this as an incredible opportunity to teach a lesson for life. And this is going to shape your children forever. That's what they're going to be tomorrow. Well, yeah. I'm, I think about my grandfather a lot. I never met him. Same namesake, Simon. And he was one of those back in the 1922 when the Rebbe made that blood pact that we will fight till the last drop of blood, as, as you mentioned. There's no question in my mind. We are not who we are. We are all shaped by prices paid by those before us. But most importantly, we have to live up to that standard. So let me ask you this. Let me broaden it for a moment. We talk about the small picture, the big picture. How do you see, I mean, you're a chief rabbi of, of millions of Jews. I mean, I know that you don't like to be seen that way. But the fact is you have a certain both, uh, as I said, a specific, you know what people's needs are. You deal with it on a daily basis. I know how committed you are to the community in Marina Rosha. At the same time, you're a chief rabbi. You, you meet Mr. Putin. You, are, uh, you meet other religious leaders. You have a certain uh, global position. So if you look at it from a bird's eye view, like a leader like that, what do you see now in context of what's been going on till now? This, you know, the pandemic is going to, please God, end. But like it's part of a piece of history here. And how do you see it? How is, what's like the, 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 the bird's eye view of what is happening? Because to be very frank, you know, I look around. I gave a talk about this a few weeks ago. Where are our leaders? You know, leadership isn't just putting out fires and finding a vaccine. And uh, if leadership is vision, it's about where we're headed. Like we've been talking here, what kind of strengths we have. How are we going to be looked at in a piece of history? So how do you see it? If I may, if I may, if I may uh, provoke you. I don't like to be negative. I'm actually normally very optimistic. But it, uh, when I look at what's going on, it reminds me the aftermath of the Six-Day War. I think we are, I don't want to sound too optimistic and say we are past the pandemic, but I think the real shock is over and we are sort of at the end of it. And hopefully things are going to get better very soon. And what's going to happen the next day? And, and after the Six-Day War, we heard the Rebbe saying clearly that there was an opportunity that was lost. People were ready to make a change. People were ready to look at the world in a different way. And, and, and there was so much emotions and so much uh, unity and everything that was lost because the leaders actually didn't step up and tell people what you should do. And I think we are in such a position. It's, it happened very sadly. It was a very, very hard time. I think it's getting easier. Hopefully it's going to get even easier. And if we're not going to use this moment and, and get people to commit to certain things, it's not only private people, I'm talking about even government. Like in the last few years, all we've been busy with is a new Cold War and the sanctions and the world disorder and what's going on in the Middle East and what's going on between China, the States, Russia, Europe. It's a mess, right? You're talking about the United Nations. I don't know if the, the UN even could earn this name anymore. It's not United Nations. It's just a place where people 
like attacking each other and no solutions come out of it. So the question is, where is the leadership? Exactly. Can countries come together and understand the same way that the pandemic hit everybody? And nobody can say, you know, we were safe. And the world is a global village. And we realize how interconnected we are. And today we're not going to, you know, unite forces to find a vaccine and all of that and rebuild the economy. If we're not going to be able to forget these stupid arguments on the world level and in the local level, we didn't learn any lesson. I think it's an opportunity to bring the world together on a global level, in, within your community. All these fights and, and little pettiness that was going around before doesn't even, you know, has no meaning anymore. Like, what is that? Is that important? Like, we're talking about lives of people suffering and, and let's get together and do something. So I think it's for sure within your, each community, we have to bring this. And within each community, I don't mean only, you know, a certain synagogue. It's the larger you know, understanding of a community, whether it's Chabad community, other communities, Jews in general. Jews could come together today like never before. What were we busy before? You know, all these arguments, whether it was the Western Wall or others, you know, we're just Jews fighting each other. Arguing was too good. Life was too easy and people were busy trying to find where can we argue. This has to stop. That's, I think, the most important message. And on a global level, countries and, and leaders, world leaders have to come together. Now is the time to come together and think, what will the world look like past coronavirus? And I always joke, there's AC and... and BC, AC, yeah. yeah. So it's after corona, right? So, so where is, what is the world going to look like? Are we still going to be stuck in these differences and arguments and, and punching each other? Or are we going to think, how can we make the world a better place? The dream of the Rebbe, and he, you know, is one good deed, but of course many good deeds are going to change the world. So it's really about taking a lesson from what is really important, the real values that are eternal, and those are going to affect the world. And everything else is really, people are going to forget about, you know, who, who, who the point is that they're going to remember those that stood up and sent a message to change the world. And this is a huge opportunity. And I think each one of us has to scream out and cry out and say, you know what, enough, enough of the, what came out of all these, you know, fights, arguments, the conflicts, wars, it has to change. It has to finish. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist like you are, but I have to say, if I may, the problem is that many of our leaders, if not most of them, are political leaders and they're cynical in a way, which is about power. And they see this, okay, how am I going to consolidate power? This idea of a spiritual vision, a spiritual leader, I mean, I'm not looking to criticize anybody, but, I mean, being someone that was exposed to a spiritual leader, the Rebbe, and frankly, all the Jewish leaders, that's what they were. They were spiritual leaders. Moshe Rabbeinu was a visionary. He wasn't just dealing with, uh, the, as you said, the petty details. He was talking about uh, a, whole, uh, a whole way of, changing a community, a world, an individual. And how do we, I mean, if you were to stand up now, if you had the platform, and you do have it, and you were speaking to all the world leaders at Davos or, or somewhere else, what? how do you get them to, to, to shift and go back to their humanity and find their soul to look at themselves more than just administrators and political and political rivals 
and, and look at life this way. How, how do you, you know, I'm just expressing a frustration, really. How do you get, how do you spark that in people who... Actually, just yesterday, I was thinking of something that we all know. You know, the, state, the, the words, nitna sholem The Torah was given to bring peace in the world. It doesn't say to bring peace, you know, in the Jewish community or to bring peace in the family which is probably also could do that, but it's to make peace in the world. The message of the Torah, whether it's, you know, uh, the seven Noahide laws or just, you know, uh, love your fellow like yourself, all these messages are not out. Actually, the whole Torah, every single deed that we do, the goal is actually, that is the reason that was given, to bring peace in the world. Leaders have to understand that wars have brought no solution. There was one word, this country one, and then another word, somebody else won. People got killed and nothing good came out of it. And by attacking each other and using power, power is not what's going to change the world. What's going to change the world is a message of peace. I think the message of peace is in the Torah, in every story of the Torah. You, you open up any parsha, any story, and it's going to, the message is going to be of peace, unity, coming together, listening to each other, understanding each other. As long as, I'm just taking this as an example, right? Because you mentioned Davos. Today, Putin and Trump, even if they want to meet, they cannot meet. Why? Because there's so much politics around. You're talking about political leaders. The whole world became uh, polarized. And, and, there's, polarized. and it's completely like you cannot talk to each other. Because if you're going to say something, that's it. It's going to become, the, whether it's Twitter or the news or I don't know who, the position, they're going to just kill you. And it's not only about, it's about can Bibi Netanyahu, for example, do what he actually believes is right. He probably can't. His hands are tied because he has a position and he has the president is going to attack him. And this is most leaders. If you ask me, I believe that if you would bring together 50 leaders from the world and put them into a room without any press, there's no uh, press conference every two hours. And they just put them into a room and think, how can we change the world? How can we bring a new change? You'll have today many, I know of many Arab countries today that are looking ways to find a way to work towards a new peace with Israel. And it's not peace about taking away territories. It's just countries that aren't even in the area. But Arab countries that understand that today being in good terms with Israel is actually beneficial for them. And I believe that most issues can be solved. People ask me, I have, and it's not a secret anymore, that have a lot to do with Iran. And people ask me, can you explain to me what does Iran have against Israel? And, and I've met with Iranian leaders also, and I have no clue. I really can't figure out. I can't figure out why this is going on. And this is like a threat to Israel, and, and, and who knows you know, how bad it could escalate. I believe if you just sit down, and let's see, what do you want? Like, wh what are we trying to do? Are we trying to just continue killing each other? People are going to continue dying? Or we have a message of peace? I believe Jewish leaders, number one, because they have the Torah backing, and, and of course, people that you know heard this message from the Rebbe time after time, we have a, a, a mission to really go out and say, enough, enough of this. We went through this pandemic, not for nothing. There is a message here to the world. Can we actually live in a better world tomorrow? Can we make a world? People, I was just in Davos in January, right? This pandemic was already out there. Nobody knew. It was the end of January. Nobody realized the, the proportions. But 
the whole Davos was busy about one thing, climate change. That's all they were worried about. If the temperature is going to be 28 degrees or 26 degrees, I agree it's important. Why? Because they're talking about what's going to happen in 1,000 years from now, 300 years from now, to the ecology of the world. I say, what's going to happen to your children? Look what's going on out there, whether it's drugs or killings or terrorism, all these things. That's what we have to fight. That's what we have to stand up and say. It's not only about the climate that is changing, it's, it's the mindset of the people has to change. Terrorists came into, into the world because there was a, a, a vacuum and, and the message was if the one that is most powerful, the one that has the most uh, guns or whatever, he's the strongest. And this has to change. The arms race that there was so much passion that spoke about with the, the moment that you know they were taking off and, and, and the Rebbe saw this as a you know preparation for the prophecy of Mashiach, it's back into place today. Why? Because there's no talking, there's no dialogue, there's no understanding. What, what, that's where the money is being spent. People are hungry. People are worried about African kids going hungry. Look how much money, how many billions of dollars are being spent in missiles and who knows what, only because we have to you know, build our arsenal against each other. So forget about that. If you really care about the world, let's figure out a way to, to use this, you know, our, our opportunities today. I, 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 very, I loved what you said about putting 50 people in the room without any press and media. I think it's brilliant. And, uh, and I really thank you for this. This is uh, very powerful. I mean, I'll tell you the truth. It deserves its own program just discussing this further, uh, this whole, because this is absolutely correct. And I'd be... I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's not only about 50 world leaders. It's also about 50 Chabad leaders, 50 Jewish leaders, and 50 everything. Sadly, the world has derailed. It, like, it, it just went the wrong direction, and, uh, and people forgot what is really important. But, you know, I'll tell you something. If this program, is, which will be heard by people, if it leads to one thing, that, and I think you're in that position because you have people's ear, and, uh, and you're in that, you know, it's like a Mordechai was put into uh, the Shvedish's palace. You know, you're in that position, whether you like it or not, and you have that ability to, uh, to express it. I think this is uh, excellent because the pandemic, if it leads to that, that changes everything. Then you could say, you know, we don't understand God's ways, but you could say this wake-up call created an ability to be able to get beyond the pettiness and beyond the, the selfishness and beyond the fears and the defensiveness that that is that's the vision i mean you mentioned mashiach but i want to say this you know a lot of people don't know what the word mashiach means they're frightened by it they think it's some type of fantasy or craziness or whatever mashiach really is what you said the word shalom torah was given to bring peace envision a world of total peace and the rambam puts it the rambam at his conclusion we just concluded the 29th cycle the 39th cycle of the rambam he says a world where there'll be no war and there'll be no exploitation and no famine and no hunger and no hunger and no um, um and no jealousies that is exactly what it is so i mean i was I'll, I'll put it in a question but i think it's already been answered that in many ways we are right now is this a prelude for that period and as you put it we have a choice right now we'd like to believe that we're going to choose correctly but how would you uh, put it i mean this is no question it's a stepping stone toward an opportunity like never before 
because of technology, because of all the tools we have, and because of this wake-up call, to really bring a completely new world order. No question. First of all, the Rambam clearly says these words, Mashiach is going to come to bring peace to the world. Right. Like if, and num number two, and the whole Gar Zavim Keves, that you'll have a, and the lion and the sheep are going to be together, that's the peace in the world. And it's not only about the lion and the sheep, it's actually about these two uh, world leaders that can live in peace eventually. But uh, I remember once hearing from the Rebbe that if we want Mashiach, we have to live today in the day, like in the times of Mashiach. Right. Mashiach times have to begin today. And where does that take us to? It's to live in peace. If you're still having an argument with your neighbor, with your partner, with your wife, with your uh, you know old friend or somebody else they don't talk to, means you're not really looking towards Mashiach. You're looking to continue fighting. And sadly, if you look in history, and actually the Al-Tarebbe says it clearly, that even Machlekes L'Shem Shamayim, even people that are arguing L'Shem Shamayim, this has brought all the tzaras. Any pandemic, any uh, hardships, any war that happened is only because people were fighting. And when they were fighting, they were saying it's all being done for the sake of heaven. We are doing it because we want to do what Hashem wants. But actually, they were doing exactly the opposite, and we see the results. So I, I, this wake-up call, I, I think, woke us up, but we fell asleep again, sadly. People, uh, you know, they got used to it, and you could live like that, and you know what? You have Zoom, and you have uh, deliveries at home, and, and we survived. And, and thank God maybe, I'm not dying. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's why God is sending a, another reminder with a little second wave. Unfortunately, <laughs> we don't need any more reminders. That's the, the yeah. point. Is we don't need any more reminders. I think the message came out very strong. When people ask me, "What is the coronavirus?" I said, "The coronavirus actually, in a certain way, divided people, but brought people even closer together. Right. People think that to be together means you have to be, you know, uh, davening in the same shul. No, that doesn't mean being together. You can be together when you are far apart, and you can be fighting when you are close apart. So." The question is, can we really let go of our ego? You asked before, but what does Chassidus, what are the power the Chassidus gives us? I think number one is Bitcoin. The number one lesson the Chassidus says is forget about your ego. Your ego is actually what we spoke before about the body and not the soul, because who has the ego? It's the body that you know says, ah, oh, who am I? And how could this person that has hurt me feeling, how could I leave him? Let him go, go his way. I have to teach him a lesson. I have to show him that, you know, you don't step on me. And, you know, with me, you know who I am, and on and on. It's, uh, that's the reasons of all the big issues. And the moment that you're ready to let go of your ego, and I believe 90% of the issues are already solved, and actually people are going to respect you even more. Yeah, well, let's, so let me, that, you know, since we're... <laughs> This is excellent, and uh, as I said, it deserves its own program. Maybe we should conclude with a call to action. So what would be, uh, let's define it, the, the responsibility of every single person, every single Jew, not just to stand on the side and to be, and to be not fighting with anyone, but what proactive action that we are part responsible of helping the unfolding of the drama to where we want it to be, the good conclusion of... Mashiach coming, a world peace, 
and everything we've been discussing. What could be specific actions? Someone says, what can I do today, tomorrow, myself, my immediate circle in real action in a time like this? So just because you're talking about wrapping up, so every evening before we wrap up our day, we begin with I, I want to forgive if anybody hurt my feelings. So I think that it starts off with a person saying, you know what, I'm forgiving everybody. I have no grudges about anybody. Eventually, this is going to bring to the next step that I can call somebody else and ask for forgiveness if I hurt your feeling. We believe it's impossible to do it. It's very easy. At the end of the day, people, you're talking about leadership, people want to see whether it's leaders, whether it's uh, wherever it is, people, they can stand up and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, or you should know that in the past you hurt me, but I'm ready to forgive you completely. It sounds an insurmountable challenge and a mountain that we cannot climb. It's actually very easy. Before you pick up the phone, it sounds like impossible. I know people that have done it actually in this period of time and their life has changed and you cannot be stuck up in the history of the past we have to look at the future you said the statement they so let's move forward let's forget about what was in the past we have a new world order out there after the mabul Nech came out and he saw a new world this new world is there out there waiting for us to take some action i believe charity starts at home it's about each one of us you now making a list. Are there any people that I hurt? Are there any people that hurt me? Are there any people that I don't speak to? And this is going to trickle out. The same way the coronavirus spreads, like, you know, you don't need to, you just are in contact with somebody for a few seconds, and this spreads out. In the goodness, it's going to be much, it's going to be a, a, like, you know, spread out like a... A, a ripple effect. A ripple effect. Exactly. Yeah. So we never know, you know, today, to, for example, to get to Trump and to get to uh, President Putin and to get to five other leaders, we never had it as accessible as we have it today. You think of uh, in the times of war, what were the opportunities of Jews to reach out to leaders were non-existent. Today, the world leaders, we have their ears and we have a way to, and, and we could show them by, you know, Prove, look what happened. Look how this changed, and we believe much more can change. I strongly believe that we have a huge opportunity, and the opportunity lays with each, within each one of us, in each home, in each family, in each person. And if we're going to move, like we said before, you know, we're going to go till the end. We're not going to stop. It looks impossible. It's, history has proven that things that look difficult are actually the things that bring the biggest results. One day, hopefully, we're going to look back and say, wow, we were part of this change. We were part of this new cataclysm, new wave of bringing really acts of goodness. Acts of goodness is not only about, you know, throwing a few pennies and uh, somebody that is begging for charity. Act of goodness is actually going out of yourself and do good for somebody else. And... I believe it's possible. It might be a small bouquet of flowers you're sending to somebody that hurt you in the past. It might be uh, two chalas and a bottle of wine to send for somebody for Shabbos. And you never know how far this is going to go. Beautifully stated. Um, the Rambam, Maimonides, says one act, one word, one thought shifts the entire reality 
like tips the scales and brings it brings personal and global redemption and i think you stated beautifully now so above all a person has to know you're not one little uh, grain of sand among seven and a half billion people you are absolutely needed and necessary and your act can change reality today we know in science the butterfly effect the ripple effect that if one little microbe of the of COVID-19, the coronavirus, could create such havoc, one positive act, exactly as you said, it doesn't need about, you don't need a dramatic, radical shift of everything. One shift in consciousness and attitude and feeling and gesture changes reality. And it was this is done by many of us, how much more so? I uh, Beautiful and excellent. Look, I would love to continue on forever but there's limits of time and space in reality. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you'd be happy that we can make a follow-up because I am confident that we're going to get a lot of response and people want to hear more because this is exactly what's needed. And if anything I personally learned from the Rebbe, and I'm sure you have in so many, is he believed in people. He believed, he believed in us, and therefore you start believing in yourself. It's easy to be somewhat skeptical or even cynical Will people rise or not? And the Rebbe cried greatly, as you said, after the Six-Day War for the lost opportunity. But he still, he did not give up. You believe in the human neshama, the soul. We say every morning, it's pure. We always renew that confidence. So we have to believe in each other and, and that people will rise. Yes, they're going to be challenged because we have our old habits and patterns. And as you said, it's so difficult right before you pick up the phone because you're trapped by your past. That's the fact. But lech lecha, that's the whole story. By your soul. The past cannot haunt your future. If you undermine yourself and you undermine everything that's possible. So I don't know. I, I, I can't thank you enough for making the time. I just want to, because I, you mentioned this Rambam of one action, thinking when the Rambam wrote it 900 years ago, it didn't really, I mean, it made sense in the world of spirituality, the world of Torah, but it didn't make sense in the actual world. How could one person living who knows where affect the whole world. Today, it's very easy. Today, technology has brought us opportunity to affect millions with a touch of a button, with one line, who knows what. And if we these again are all the opportunities that were given to us all at once to bring this change. And let's use them together. Absolutely, absolutely. So I want to thank you, dear Rabbi Lazar, making the time beautifully stated i i i've been inspired i hope you are and i'm sure sure words from the, heart, from the heart and um so i'll just uh, say as i said we we like to say by chassidim that we only take a small break between one fabrengen and the next so this is not the end it's just a break and uh, above all may this be the inspiration and among many inspirations to tip the scale if one of us acts based on this discussion and conversation it was worth more than anything and i'm confident that it will happen so thank you again and i'll just say in concluding note this has been simon jacobson in a conversation a warm conversation a beautiful conversation with chief rabbi of russia rabbi beryl lazar and please look forward to more such programs you go to meaningfullife.com and we will be listing all upcoming things our mission, our goal, which is what we've all been discussing, and I believe is the mission of all of us, is to do everything possible to tip that scale, 
to do that act, that gesture, that word, that thought that can change the world forever. And then the pandemic, the negative part will be long forgotten. And the only thing that will remain is the transformation to a better and perfect world, what we call the world of personal and global redemption. Everyone be blessed and be well. It's been an honor to be here. And thank you again, Rabbi Lazar.